0: Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to have your seat. We're going to continue to worship the Lord by opening our Bibles. Let me invite you to join me in Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews 3 is where we're going to be this morning as we continue through this sermon series through the book of Hebrews and this idea of hold fast, Jesus is better. And as you're turning to Hebrews 3, let me begin by asking, I'm I'm assuming you've heard this, you've uh, had maybe this said to you, or you've uh, seen this uh, play. Out between two other people, but a few statements uh, that we're probably all familiar with. Statements like, keep your eyes on the road, which is usually what a parent tells their teenage driver. Uh, our twins turned 15 this last week. I got a feeling I'm going to say those words a lot uh, in the coming months. Or keep your eye on the ball, which is a coach telling uh, their players, you got to keep your eye on the ball or keep your eyes open, um, <clears throat> keep your eyes on the prize, statements of, of life. and and what it is that we're pursuing in that. But all of these statements, what they all have in common is they're all alluding to this idea, idea that we are paying careful attention to someone or to something and the text that we come to today is going to call us to pay careful attention, to give great consideration, particularly to Jesus. And as we give consideration to Jesus, as we pay careful attention to Jesus, that, that as we fix our eyes on him, that we are going to be protected from the dangers of, of a hard and even unbelieving heart. In fact, this is where God's word is going to lead us this morning, this idea right here. When we fix our attention on Jesus. Jesus, we protect our hearts from being hardened and from unbelief. Let me say that again. When we fix our attention on Jesus, we protect our hearts from being hardened and from unbelief. And so with that, I'm going to encourage you all to get your eyes on a copy of God's Word. I'm going to read the entirety of Hebrews chapter 3, and uh, then we're going to walk through this great text. Loved ones, this is God's Word to us. Uh, Hebrews 3, starting in verse 1, says this, Therefore, holy brothers, you who Share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken later, but Christ is faithful over. Over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Verse 7 Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for forty years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, they have not known my ways. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Loved ones, this is God's word to us, and it will stand true for all of time. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Oh, gracious and good Heavenly Father, we are so thankful to you. Uh, for so many things, God, we're thankful for your word. God, that your word uh, does your work. God, that your word um, is is going to be a word of exhortation. Uh, God, your word is going to be a word of conviction. Uh, God, your word is going to be a word of, of, of encouragement. Uh, and your word will do so much more. And so, Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, God, we want to sit under your word. We, we want to be submitted to your word. Uh, God, we want to hear all that you have for us uh, and to respond accordingly. And so, God, in, as much as you issue this warning, and, and parts of this are, are, are rich and exciting, and others of these, uh, the, 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 these these words that you have for us are, are firm, um, and, and maybe even feel very stern or even harsh at times. And God, I pray that we would uh, remain under your word, abide in your word, God, not only for us, but as always, we want to pray for another church in the area. And this morning, God, we're praying for New City Church and for Pastor Nate Bush. God, praying for them that they would remain under your word, that they would be faithful to your word. God, that you would be accomplishing your purposes in them uh, in the same way that we desire that you would accomplish your purposes within us. So God, would you come now, have your way, open our eyes to your word and all that you have for us, and we pray this in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. All right, well, the title of the message this morning is Considering Jesus, Considering Jesus, and when you think of considering, I mean, we think of considering, uh, maybe it's kind of passive or apathetic or mundane in terms of... Uh, what we think. But the biblical term here is to focus our attention on or, or to think intently of uh, an individual or a thing. And so we want to fix our attention on Jesus. And that, that, that's the imperative command that comes out of verse one, that we're to consider Jesus. And so the way the chapter breaks down, there's really two distinct parts to Hebrews chapter three. The first part, verses one through six, is this command to consider Jesus. And then verses seven through 19 is the warning. Uh, that comes uh, to to, to hear his voice and to not harden our hearts. And you might be tempted to go, well, what's the connection between these two things? These seem like two totally independent ideas. And yet the connection is this. When we fix our eyes on Jesus... We cut against and we push against the various ways that life will be uh, tempting us to harden our heart or to even move to a place of unbelief. So uh, our failure to consider Jesus is going to leave us open and exposed to the very real possibility of uh, a hard heart or even unbelief. So with that, let's get into the text. Uh, Let's begin with this idea, just two points here this morning. The first is this, uh, look at verses one through six, uh, and it's this idea here that we consider Jesus. We consider Jesus. And again, the, the command comes in verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. And so I want you to note two things here in verses 1 through 6 around us considering Jesus. The first is this, that we consider who Jesus makes us. Right, there's this entirely new identity uh, that, that, that's on display because of the work of Jesus that we see in the first half of verse 1. Notice, first of all, he says this, therefore, holy brothers... And the idea is this, is that Jesus makes us holy. That's what it says. He doesn't just call us brothers. He calls us holy brothers or holy brothers and sisters. Jesus makes us holy. Now, you might hear that and you might go, does the author know who he's writing to? Uh, does he understand his audience? Right? We're not holy and they're not holy. And yet, the reality is that's exactly what's going on here. Right, this is part of the incredible and nothing short of miraculous work of God, that God makes you and I holy, right? that he sanctifies us and that he puts his righteousness upon us. Okay, So question, church question, when God looks at you right now, what does he see? Tell me. He sees Jesus. He sees specifically the righteousness of Jesus. He doesn't see your sin, he doesn't see your failure, he doesn't see your rebellion, he sees the holiness and the righteousness of Jesus. Praise God for that, right? I mean, that, that's a stunning truth. It's also a sobering truth. I mean, think about the reality that God has done this. I mean, this, this should frame how you and I think about sin in our own lives. There's not this kind of casual, apathetic, indifferent approach, but instead a desire to live in righteousness and holiness and purity because of what Christ has done for us. Right? We consider who Jesus makes us, first of all, that he makes us holy. Secondly, the word that holy is describing their brothers is that Jesus makes us family. And we talked about last week in Hebrews 2 that Jesus wasn't ashamed to call us his brother or sister. Jesus isn't ashamed to call us family. And the reality is that Jesus takes us who are outsiders, foreigners, those who are illegitimate, and he makes us family. That's what he does for us. And to be made a part of, to be brought into God's family brings with it the full privilege of belonging to the family of God. And, And every family, every single family has certain privileges or or, or some unique benefit that comes with belonging to that family, right? Most things in that reality are, are simple items uh, that belong, uh, that, that come with belonging to a family. Sometimes there's some profound things, but but when you come into a family, you're given the full, uh, total privilege of coming into a family. So here, let me try to illustrate this real quick. Um, when, when I was growing up in Flagstaff, my grandparents also lived in Flagstaff, and they had this really cool, big, historic house just north of downtown. So if you're driving up San Francisco Street, which is right there on uh, downtown, as, as you're coming up, they have this huge old historic house. And I can remember even at times where I'd be sitting on the porch with my grandpa, and people were like, oh, I wish I could go in there, I wish I could walk through it. Uh, and they never got to enter that house, because my grandparents didn't really like people in the house, right? And, and particularly just random people walking by but as a child i wouldn't even knock on the door man i'd blow through that thing like i owned the joint why because i'm family and so I have the freedom to enter into that space. I have the freedom to enjoy what, what, what is afforded uh, to me as being a part of that family that was not offered to random people walking by on the street or anyone else. And this is what God does for us. He gives us the, the totality, the, the full inclusion of, what, of all that he possesses, that we have access and rights to that because Jesus makes us family. And then thirdly, make note of this. It says, you who share in a heavenly calling, that Jesus gives us a purpose. That you, you have a divine calling, you have a divine purpose. And, and, and in giving us this divine calling, this divine purpose, that this means that your work and your life is not inconsequential or insignificant. It matters. And here's why it matters. Right? It matters because we get to share in seeking to honor and glorify and exalt God in all that we do. And so part of our consideration of Jesus is we just look at what, what, he, what he does for us, who he makes us, how he takes us as, as aliens from him and adopts us into his family, making us like him and giving us a significant a purpose and meaning to our life. So we consider who Jesus makes us, and yet even that is on the periphery of what's going on here in verses 1 through 6, because what is central to the argument is that we just consider who Jesus is. So more than what he does for us, that we just begin to realize who Jesus himself is. And, and, and there's a handful of different items that the, that the author of Hebrews is going to highlight here in verses 1 through 6, and most notably what he's going to do is he's going to compare Jesus to Moses. Now, you and I think about comparing Jesus to Moses, and we're like, that's laughable they're not even comparable. That's like a joke. Who compares Jesus to Moses? But you have to understand, you have to understand for a first century Jew, Mo- Moses was the stuff of legend, right? This is the guy who led uh, Israel out of Egypt. This is the guy who led them through the wilderness and walked them right up to the doorstep of the promised land. This was their first prophet. This is a guy who functioned even as a priest at different times. He was the stuff of legend. He was not some inconsequential character. He was a incredibly significant, maybe the most notable character in the entire Old Testament. And so in as much as we might think it's laughable, uh, they would not have thought a comparison to Moses as laughable. They would have thought, wow, Jesus must be pretty good to be uh, being compared to Moses. But notice, and I'm going to just run through uh, these, the the four different items, and then we'll kind of make a connection to all of them on the back end, that we consider who Jesus is four things. First of all, in verse 1, we see that we consider Jesus the apostle, that Jesus is our apostle. Now, apostle simply means one that's sent by God, and we know that Jesus was sent by God. We think of apostle, we tend to think of New Testament disciples, book of Acts, like those are apostles, but before they were ever apostles, Jesus was an apostle, Jesus was sent by God for us. Secondly, we see also in verse 1 that Jesus is our high priest. He's the one who brings sacrifice to God on behalf of his people. He's the one who atones for sin on behalf of his people. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what John the Baptist said about Jesus. And so what you see just in these first two, right? Jesus is both, right? He's both the one who sent from God to the people as well as the one who comes from the people back to God on behalf of the people, right? So he's, he's literally the mediator going both ways on this. Apostle, high priest, verse two, we're told that he's faithful, he who is faithful to him who appointed him. And here, explicitly, the connection of Moses comes in, or the comparison of Moses, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. But notice, the author doesn't let Moses hang long before just making a very clear statement that Jesus is simply superior. He's better than Moses. Verse 3, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than, than Moses. He's like, hey guys, just in case you're wondering, well, we're going to compare these two, but they're really not incomparable. Jesus is, is, is counted worthy of far more glory than Moses. Why? Well, look at what he goes on to say. As much more glorious the builder of a house has, more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, to testify to the things that were spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And so here in these verses, we see our latter two items that deal with Jesus. First of all this, that Jesus is our builder. Jesus is our builder and and specifically to Jesus there's more glory ascribed to him than to, to Moses because Jesus is the builder. Well, well, why is that? Well, because a house or a structure or any building for that matter is simply a reflection of the creativity and the ingenuity of the builder to take the raw materials and create an actual structure. Right? A house is just an inanimate object. It it takes some level of skill and some 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 level of vision to take those raw materials and to create an actual house. And that's what God is saying that Jesus does. And so think about it. If you, Anyone in here, well, maybe a lot of us haven't built a home. How many of you have ever done some kind of major remodel? Any remodel in your home? Right? And so what do you do when you finish the remodel? You invite all your friends over so they can tell you how great it looks. Right? Like that's what you do. You want all your friends to know how awesome your remodel looks. So you invite everyone over and you do that. But when people come in, they don't walk in and they're like, oh, praise the tile so that, that that countertop praise. The, they don't do that. And even, even the compliment around the color or the scheme or the material is really ultimately about the builder because they're saying you have the vision, you have the wherewithal to see how this would work in this space. Jesus is the builder who's over the house. Moses, he's just a part of the house. Right? He's faithful, thankful for that, but he ain't doing anything special. He's just hanging out with everyone in the house. And it crescendos with what we see in verse 5 and 6, where it says that Jesus is the Son. Right? Verse 5, speaking of Moses, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, to testify to the things that were spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. See, Moses is just a servant. Moses is there to serve someone else. Jesus is the son. He's the heir. He, he, he's the, the, the rightful recipient of all of these things. And a servant is simply one. that Their role is to serve their master, right? It's to forsake their own agenda and to embrace the agenda of their master as their own. And so Moses isn't really about Moses. Moses is ultimately about Jesus. That's what the author of Hebrews is alluding to here. And it says that he's faithful as a servant. Okay, to what end? Well, look at what it says in verse 5. To testify to the things that were spoken later. The point is this. Even Moses was ultimately about Jesus. Right? So, so this idea of this, this temptation to go back to Judaism, he's like, man, even your best guy was ultimately pointing you to Jesus. Why would you go back to someone who's inferior at the expense of following the one who's superior? Moses was pointing you to him. It's his whole point. And don't miss this. In the metaphor, how many houses are there? Tell me. There's one house. Right? If Moses was great, he'd have his own house. If other people were great, there would maybe be like a cul-de-sac of homes. There's only one house. Why is this? Because all of the work and the ministry of the various individuals in the Old Testament were all laying the foundation that would ultimately lead to Jesus. It's the whole point. There's only one house. We don't need another house. We got a son of the house. Everyone else is just a servant within the house. Moses even goes on to say this in Deuteronomy 18. He says, God will raise up for you a prophet and it's to him that you should listen to. And maybe in the back of his mind, he's like, well, you probably won't listen to him. You didn't listen to me either, but I'm just telling you, you should listen to him. And Jesus is the son who's faithful over God's house. And it's his supremacy to Moses that's seen in him being the son and Moses simply being the servant. Okay, so what, what, what's the implications of this? Why, uh, why belabor this? Why draw this out? Um, two things, two things that I think are really important for us. In light of what we're seeing here in verses one through six of Hebrews 3. Here's the first thing, loved ones it's this that we're the house. You and I are the house. Look at verse six. And we are his house. Jesus isn't working to build a physical structure. He's not putting um, a drywall and, and, and two by four together to say, look at how great I am. He is taking people, you and I, and he's building of us a house. First Peter 2 says this, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. Ephesians 2, so then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. God is building his people. Church, he's building you and I into a structure that is meant to be for his glory. And it's helpful for us as well because it helps us to see our place. Jesus is over the house. We're just like Moses. We're servants within the house. We're the house. But then don't miss the end of verse 6. Right? This conditional statement. that probably had some of you getting uncomfortable even as we were reading through the text a few minutes ago. We are his house if... uh Uh-oh. We don't like seeing that. We just want to be told we're his house, period. But but that's not what the Bible says. We are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. He's saying, hey, here's the deal. You're the house if we hold fast. Right, that's the second part of this, second implication, we must hold fast. This is the big if statement here in verse 6. There's actually another one in verse 14, and this conditional statement maybe starts making us a little uncomfortable. Maybe it uh, starts to bother us a little bit. Well, here, let's just walk through it, and let's, let, let's see how God's word is actually helping us, not confusing us. See, we're his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Okay, well, what is our confidence and our boasting and our hope in? It's in Jesus. It's not in ourselves. It's not in our works, right? So there, there's nothing in here that all of a sudden it's like, oh, okay, well, yeah, we're, we're still going to hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope in the Lord. And so what the author is saying is, here's what he's getting at. He's saying legitimate faith, true and legitimate faith is revealed through a steadfastness to the gospel. Now, church, don't confuse or conflate what's going on here. This is not in reference to salvation. This is not saying you are saved if you do these things. You are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Period. That's how people are saved. Right? So don't confuse this. What the author is saying is that the test of our faith is revealed in a perseverance to our hope and our confidence and our boasting, or it is revealed that we actually don't have faith if we reject our hope and our confidence and our boasting. That That's what he's getting at. And so the warning is, hold fast to the faith. Hold fast to the confidence. Hold fast to the hope. That's what he's telling us to hold fast. And you might go, okay, that's still kind of scary. Or how do I know I'm doing that? Or what if I fail? Or "What, what, what would enable me and help me to continue to hold fast Let me read a quote here from a guy named Rick Phillips. Rick Phillips wrote a commentary on the book of Hebrews. I think this is a great quote. Uh, Phillips is steeped in the military, spent a number of years in the military, multiple generations in uh, the military. Here's the quote that Phillips makes. Listen to this. He says, It's well documented that the great commanders of history inspired terrific bravery by their simple presence, just by letting soldiers set their eyes upon them, Alexander the Great, Caesar, Napoleon, Patton, all had this aura of invincibility that produced undaunted courage in the hearts of those who saw them amidst the fray. Now, here's the connection. This is what the eyes of faith see when we fix them upon Jesus, who is the captain of our salvation. And he goes on and he says this, courage comes through seeing. You have to get your eyes on Jesus. You gotta get your hearts on Jesus. Your souls have to be fixated on Christ. We have to be seeing him above all the other stuff and all the other junk and all the other garbage in this world. And when we will behold Jesus, that is the greatest defense against a calloused or hardened heart in our lives. And so church, let me ask you, how are you fixing your mind on Jesus, how are you fixing your attention on Jesus? How are you considering Christ? How are you considering Him at school? How are you considering Christ at work? How are you considering Christ in your home? How are you cr- considering Christ in your hobbies and in your in your entertainment? How are you considering Christ when you're in the marketplace? How are you considering, thinking, reflecting, uh, being consumed by Christ in your life? We consider Jesus. And don't miss, don't miss, contextually, they were being pressured to abandon the faith. And what sustained them is to fix their attention upon Jesus. And loved ones, what will sustain you and I is when we fix our attention on Jesus. We consider Jesus, God help us, that that would be true of us. So now on the heels of this exhortation, here comes the second of five warnings that we find through the book of Hebrews and, and simply this, starting in verse 7 through the rest of the chapter, it's that we heed the warning. We heed the warning. In fact, I'm going to give you a warning and also a way that we respond to the warning that we see coming out of the text. And this is the second of five warnings. But I want to pause here right at the outset. I want you to look at verse 7 for a moment. Because this is just a, a, a helpful, uh, quick, uh, anecdotal side note of, of of what God's Word does in the lives of God's people. So, verse seven says, "Therefore, as the tell me who does he say, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit what's the next word?" says, and then he quotes Psalm 95. Psalm 95 is probably about a thousand years old at the time that Hebrews was written. How many of you knew Psalm 95 was written by the Holy Spirit? Right? Hopefully, you're like, well, we all. How, how many of you know that the whole Bible is written by the Holy Spirit? Right? That, that, that's the reality. That's what Second Peter 1 tells us. That, that no human author is just doing their own thing. They're all carried along by the Spirit of God, uh, I- instructing them and informing them on what it is that they should write. And so it's not only that the Holy Spirit is composing Psalm 95, but that last word, he didn't say the Holy Spirit said, past tense. He said the Holy Spirit what? Says present tense. So help me understand how a thousand-year-old text is present tense being spoken. Here's how. Because God is eternally unchanging. God's word is eternally relevant and authoritative in our present place and over our present lives. Right? So 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 it's not just this old back there, well, that worked for them. No, no. God's word is presently speaking to you and I even today. Right? So so that this is true not just in Hebrews 3. This is true right now in 2021. Right? The Holy Spirit is saying presently to you and I, and here's what he's saying. It says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And so here's the, right, the exhortation on the back end, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So we're heeding the warning, and the warning here is to not harden our hearts. He's saying, don't harden your heart. Now, this reference from Psalm 95, while it's eternally binding like all of God's Word, it does speak specifically to a couple of instances in the Old Testament. So here, I want you to flip with me for just a moment. Uh, Come back with me to Exodus uh, 16 and 17. And then we'll also move to Numbers 13 and 14. But I just want you to see a couple of things here because I want you to see some of the verbiage that we saw in Psalm 95 that's actually coming right out of Exodus and Numbers uh, and helping to frame what's going on here in Hebrews 3. Exodus 14, the people walk across the Red Sea on dry ground. Man, that would have been a moment, wouldn't it? Like, like, have you ever been at the beach and you try to pull the sand away to see it dry out? Like, like that's one thing if, if, if the tide goes out and it eventually dries out. It's another thing to just walk right through an ocean on dry ground, All right? So, so that's uh, Exodus 14. Exodus 15, they sing a song of praise to God, which after chapter 14 feels still inadequate. Like, I just feel like there probably should be more. Uh, Exodus 16, they start grumbling and complaining. Oh, how quickly they got to that point, right? God, there's no food. What are we going to eat? God sends manna. Exodus 17. Uh, God, we're in the desert. I don't know if you know how deserts work. Not a lot of water. We're thirsty. So here, let me read to you from Exodus 17. I want to read a few verses here. I'm going to start in verse 2. It says, therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you, here it is, test the Lord? The people in verse 3 continue to grumble against Moses. Verse 4, Moses is asking God, What shall I do with this people? They're ready to stone me. Jump down to verse 6. God is now speaking. God says this. He says, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Masa, which means testing, and Meribah, which means quarreling or rebellion, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Right, so, so the issue that comes up in Psalm 95 is that they tested the Lord. And you see that language coming right out of the biblical text. Right? They're testing him. Now jump over to Numbers 13 and 14. Here's the other incident that is in reference in Psalm 95 or in view in Psalm 95. Now in, in the beginning of uh, Numbers 13, God said, uh, send 12 spies into the promised land that I'm giving you. That's what it says in verse 1. I'm giving you the land. Send 12 spies in. Uh, So 12 spies go in, land looks really good. But what's the problem? Oh man, there's some big old people living in that land. And so the spies come back and what are they saying? No, 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 no. Like hard nope, not gonna work, not going, not doing it. Now two of them said yes, but 10 of them said no. And it gets so bad, the people are rebelling against Moses and his leadership, and they're actively trying to create a plan to go back to Egypt. Like, what a bunch of morons, right? Here's God's pronouncement of judgment at the end of this. I'm going to read Numbers 14, 22, and 23. He said, None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and have yet put me to the test these ten times, and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give their fathers, and none of those who despised me shall see it. Now you might say, what what is this? I get what that has to do with Psalm 95, but what in the world does Exodus 16 and 17, and Numbers 13 and 14, and Psalm 95, and Hebrews 3, Mike, what does that have to do with my life? And the short answer to that is everything. Because the warnings issued here weigh prominently upon us. That we would heed the warning to not harden our hearts. And that, that, that's where God starts. Verse 7, today, today, like right now, maybe even some of you sitting in this room, and you're like, nah, I don't know if I want to listen, I don't know if I care, that you would hear the voice of God and that you would not harden your heart. And you might say, man, who, who would do that? Like, who, are there, who would harden their heart? Why would people do that? that? That won't happen to me. The Israelites saw the ten plagues. The Israelites walked through dry ground in the middle of the ocean. And it took the Israelites about 15 minutes to harden their heart toward God. You're not above it. We need the warning. And we need to heed what God is telling us. And specifically, I want to drive and uh, kind of lean into two things here in, in Psalm 95 around this warning to not harden our hearts. And it's, the first is this, that we would fail to understand our present place. Right, Part of this warning to not harden our hearts, that you and I would fail to understand our present place. Here's what I mean by this. Look at verse 8. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. That word test showed up multiple times in Exodus and in Numbers. Verse 9, where your fathers put me to the test. Where the people were tested in the wilderness. But here, here's the issue for Israel. Israel never came to understand what their time in the wilderness was all about. Do you know what their time in the wilderness was really all about? Their time in the wilderness could be summed up in, in this way, that God, uh, God draws us out of slavery and into relationship with him. That's what happened in the book of Exodus. God drew his people out of slavery, and he's drawing them into relationship with himself. Israel never made that connection. But church, that's the exact same connection that's going on with you and I in our lives today. That's what our life is about. God is drawing you and I out of the slavery of sin, and he's drawing us into relationship with himself. And so in many ways, the wilderness wanderings are are almost synonymous, or they represent our time here on earth. We are people who are sojourning toward the promised land, but we are presently living in the desert, and we're in the desert so that we would learn how to follow and obey and worship and give ourselves over to the Lord. That's what's going on right now. Why is life hard? Why don't things work? Why isn't this happening? God is teaching you how to trust him, love him, relate to him, abide in him. That's what's going on. Here's the disconnect. Here's the disconnect for so many of us, right? We, we know what it's like to live in the desert. Uh, we literally live in the desert. The, 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 problem with the, right, the problem with the desert, there's no water, nothing grows, the soil's terrible, right? You can't sustain yourself without all kinds of help. Here, but here's the problem, here's the problem. In failing to understand our present place, we look at the desert, but we want the trappings of the promised land. We want, yeah, I understand there's the, 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 it's just sand in your backyard, but I want a lush garden that's, that, that's flowing with milk and honey. Bro, you're in the desert. That, that, it, it doesn't play like that. It doesn't work that way. And so here's, here's where the temptation to harden our hearts and to lead towards unbelief comes into play. And, and it's this, church, when the desert doesn't look like and the desert doesn't act like the promised land. We're tempted to harden our hearts toward God in frustration at God. God, you didn't give me enough. You didn't give me plenty. You didn't work the way I wanted you to here. You didn't sustain this. You didn't provide for this. You didn't do whatever it was. That's the disconnect. So many of us are living in the desert. We want it to look like the promised land. Like, like, who in their right mind moves from the East Coast and expects New Mexico to look like the East Coast? You'd be like, oh, that's, only a fool would do that. We're all doing that. We want lush, ripe, rich, prosperous in a broken, sin-scarred land. And then here's the other problem, or really, I guess, what gets revealed in this is in wanting all of the trappings of the promised land. And in our frustration, far too often what it actually reveals is I'm more inclined towards the benefits of God than I am to the person of God himself. That was Israel's issue. Israel had God's presence in their midst, and they were never satisfied. They were always grumbling and griping about something. And for far too many of us, the same is true. Maybe the Holy Spirit literally dwelling inside of us and yet we're grumbling about something. See, for Israel, God was nothing more than a cosmic genie. He was one who existed to dispense whatever it is that they wanted. And maybe you have that same issue, that for you, God is nothing more than a cosmic genie and you're frustrated because God isn't giving you what you want. And maybe what's getting exposed in this moment isn't the inadequacy or the insufficiency of God. It's the reality that you're not really interested in looking for Jesus. You just want the benefits that come with Jesus. You don't want the person. You want the bennies. And as you think about that, consider this quote from A.W. Pink. He says this. He says, Testings reveal the state of our hearts. A crisis neither makes nor mars a man, but it does manifest him. And while all is smooth sailing, we appear to be getting along well. But are we? mind stayed upon the Lord? Or are we complacently resting in his temporal mercies? When the storm breaks, it's not so much that we fail in it as that our habitual lack of leaning upon God or daily walking in dependency upon him is simply made evident. Our present place is meant to reveal to us that our greatest need is relationship with God. And the greatest gift that we have is the person of God. Because when you think about, when you think about the most meaningful relationships that you share with, with other people, when you think about the deepest relationships that you share with other people, you, you don't think about what kind of social capital or or, or material benefit that they bring to you. So my, my wife, unequivocally, my wife is my favorite person. That's my best friend. Uh, if I had to spin if it's like you only get to be with one person, I would happily choose my wife. And I'm not saying that because that's the right answer. I'm saying that because I believe that. I love my wife. But the greatest benefit and the greatest blessing of my wife is her person. When I think about that, I don't think about like, oh, she cooks well, right? Or or she's just a lot nicer than I am, which both of those are true and a host of other things. What I think about is that she's the benefit. She's the blessing. It's the same with my kids, right? When I think about my kids, I love my kids. Like, my kids have actually reached that age where now they actually start giving things back to their parents, right? The first dozen years or so, it is totally a one-sided event. Uh, Moms and dads, I don't know why none of you said amen with with kids. Like, are you not raising children? What is going on in your home, right? Like, we know this. But again, it's not that now they give me a gift on my birthday. I don't care about that. They're the gift. Church, Jesus is the gift. And we start looking at the, the trappings and the things around us, and it's not nice or it's not ideal, or it didn't work out the way I wanted to, or this is getting hard or I don't agree with this. That's where the temptation to harden our hearts slips in, because we've quit looking at Jesus. We've quit thinking about Jesus. We've quit focusing on Jesus, and we're focusing on some other nonsense over here, which is the gateway and the back door towards temptation. We heed the warning to not harden our hearts. And the ways we do that, we get our eyes off our situations and we get them on Jesus. Secondly, not only that we would fail to understand our present place, secondly, and I kind of started to run into this a little bit, uh, it's this, that we would fail to remember God's faithful work. So look at verse 9, where your fathers put me to the test and they saw my works for 40 years. I mean, God was pretty faithful to Israel, right? I mean, just think about all that they saw in the wilderness. Manna. Every day, every day for 40 years, water in the desert, preservation and protection from their enemies led by a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke day after day, God dwelling in a tent, right? God's glorified camping so that he can be all amongst their midst. And then you think about how God preserved the, the, the physical elements of the Israelites. It says that their clothing and their shoes did not wear out in Deuteronomy. Now think about this, like like I got three teenage boys, you can get four months out of a pair of shoes, you're like, that's a win, right? There are teenagers that spent 40 years walking around in the wilderness and they did it in the same pair of shoes. Because God says that that might be the greatest miracle of all in the wilderness, honestly, right? I mean, that's insanity there. And so you're thinking, who forgets that? Who loses sight of that? Comes to the next issue and is like, well, I don't know if God's going to provide or not. Like, what a group of fools. Careful, because we got to ask some questions of ourselves, too. Who fails to remember that you and I were dead in our sin? and made alive in Jesus? Who fails to remember that we are wicked, yet we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ? Who fails to remember that even though we are estranged orphans, we are brought into the family of God and we are given an incomparable inheritance? Who fails to remember that God himself, our God will humble himself to the point of death so that you and I can have life? Who fails to remember that God is gonna remedy the issue of our rebellion so that we can be reconciled unto him? Who fails to remember that? we do. We fail to remember that. And when we fail to remember God's work, that's when we're tempted to succumb to a hardened heart. Some of you, what you need to do later today is you need to go home and you need to open a Word doc or you need to get a pad of paper out, whatever it is, and you need to just start writing down all the ways that God has faithfully worked in your life. And you need to remember God's faithful work to you. So in response to this warning to not harden our hearts, here's the, that, that's the warning. Here's our response. And I'm going to focus in verses 13 through 15, primarily because 16 and following, we're going to be up to our eyeballs in that uh, next week. So I'll make a couple of brief comments, but I want to focus the rest of our time here in verses 13 through 15. And so in response to not hardening our heart, here's this second warning, if you will, and that's uh, that we would exhort one another. Look at verse 13. But exhort one another every day as long as as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And then in verse 15 he again quotes from Psalm 95 that we're to exhort one another, right? The way that we combat these potential pitfalls is we speak into and we hear from others, um, uh, helping us to remember our place, helping us to remember God's work and what God is doing amongst us, right? Now, sin is deceitful. It's insidious and wicked. It will destroy us if we lit it. And so it it wants us to miss that, to forget that, to, to lose that. And church, this is why living in community is so crucial. Because other people of God, reminding you of the work of God, other people of God, reminding you of the faithfulness of God, that's what brings us back to center. God calls us to live in community, and he does so for a specific reason. We're not wired, we're not designed to live on our own. That's not how God has created us. We're designed to live in community. So I'm going to speak pastorally here for a moment. Uh, I'd like to think it's an exhortation. It might feel firmer than that, and you might say that's not, that's a rebuke. You can call it whatever you want. Just hear the warning. But it's not lost on your pastors. The increasing indifference and non committal nature with which we as a church I'm not talking about the American church, I'm talking about faith church with which we as a church are approaching discipleship. And it is deeply concerning to us. It is deeply grievous to us because we understand how utterly devastating it's going to be if we don't course correct. And so you got to hear this. If you remove yourself from community, you forfeit what God has put into place, the very community of God, the people of God, that are going to help remind you of what God has faithfully done over and over and over again and remind you of why we're at where we're at. You forfeit all of that. So church, honest assessment time. Honest assessment time. Who has a voice in your life? What people have a voice in your life that you're going to hear from and you're going to trust them? Secondly, who has a place to speak in your life? They have the context, they have the opportunity, they have the, the setting by which to do this. Thirdly, who has perspective to see into your life? Not the veneer, not the show you're putting on on Sunday morning. I'm talking about what's really going on in your heart of hearts and in your soul of souls because we're benefited to have others speak into our lives. And it's a great gift when we're willing to do that for others. But it only happens if we're actually living in community. And this individualistic, isolated, do-our-own thing, that thing ain't going to work. It just ain't going to work. So how do we do this? Let me give you three quick examples. First of all this, get into a discipleship group. So I said this first service because he wasn't in the room, but I'm going to say it again anyway. Uh, I would love for you all to give Pastor Brian a mountain of work. I would love that that he's got to figure out where do we put all these people who aren't presently in discipleship in discipleship. Would you be okay with that? Okay, I was a little afraid he might say no. I'm glad he didn't say that. All right, So whether it's, it's getting into a formal group, whether it's a one-to-one, whatever it is, where we are intentionally in community pursuing the Lord with one another. Another way you do this is, is through hospitality. You just invite people into your home. Invite people to come share a meal with you. Invite people to share life with you. We do it through hospitality. Another way, uh, maybe, maybe the most significant way that we do this is through the Sunday morning gathering. It's what's happening right now, right? And so many of you, what you say is, man, I just love how welcoming people are. I love how people uh, actually care. Uh, but more than that, here's what you have to understand. This right here, you might not know this and you might not believe this, but this is what's actually true. The Sunday morning gathering is the single most important event of your week. And that's true every single week of your life. Did you hear that? This is the single most important thing that happens in any of your week. Now, you may not believe it. You might not live that way. But that's what the Bible tells us. In fact, later in the book of Hebrews, we're going to be exhorted to not forsake the gathering. Why? Because this is crucially important in how God has chosen to order his people. And so we heed the warning to exhort one another. But you can't do that if you're living in isolation. God help us that we be people living in community. Finally, this, like I said, I'm just going to be brief here. Verses 16 through 19, this final item, that we heed the warning that unbelief prevents us from entering God's rest. Unbelief prevents us from entering God's rest. And the only reason I'm going to be brief is not because it's not important. It's actually critically important. But like I said, we're going to be up to our eyeballs in this next week. But in verse 16 through 19, you have three illustrations of people not hearing what God says and the resulting consequence. Right. They heard, in verse 16, yet they rebelled. They provoked, in verse 17, and they were dead in the wilderness. They were disobedient, in verse 18, and they didn't enter into that rest. And they didn't enter because when there's unbelief, you can never enter into that rest. Two quick statements. First of all, this. Let me just caution you that unbelief is a serious sin and it has serious and eternal consequences. And number two... That unbelief does not lead to any sense of rooted, settled, firm, or secure living. It is unsettled, it is restless, and it's actually homeless. The people of God through the wilderness were homeless. Unbelief leads to homelessness. I'm not talking about physical homelessness. I'm talking about spiritual homelessness. And so we need to heed the warning that unbelief prevents us from entering God's rest. God help us, we'd fix our eyes on Jesus. God help us, we'd consider Jesus. God help us, we'd fix our attention intently upon Jesus. This is what's gonna help to prevent a hardened heart. This is what helps us to really see life in our present place. This is what reminds us of God's work. And this is what allows us to exhort one another. Church, let's pray.